We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, uh, Will Hall, and I'm actually um, doing the broadcast today from a pre-recorded broadcast from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And actually, we're not um, talking about Argentina on the show today. That was actually last week's show. You can check that out. Um, But today we have Bruce Levine. Bruce has been on uh, Madness Radio in the past, and he's just come out with a new book, and the title is Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, How to Find Morale, Energy, and Community in a World Gone Crazy. Um, So the description of the book is uh, the rate of depression in the U.S. has increased more than tenfold in the last 50 years. By not seriously confronting societal sources of despair, American mental health institutions have become part of the problem rather than the solution. The good news is that age-old wisdom and legitimate science, uncorrupted by the profit margin pressures of pharmaceutical and insurance corporations, have much to inform us about revitalizing depressed people and a depressing culture. Surviving America's Depression Epidemic provides an alternate approach that encompasses the whole of our humanity, society, and culture, and which redefines depression in a way that makes enduring transformation more likely. So I I highly recommend this book. Uh, Check it out. Get it from your independent independent bookstore. And if you're in the Northampton area, uh, check the Freedom Center website, freedom-center.org, because Bruce Levine is uh, coming into town soon. Um, he's going to be doing an event sponsored by the, the Freedom Center. So um, let me read um, Bruce's bio as well. Bruce E. Levine, Ph.D., is a clinical psychologist, author of Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, How to Find Morale, Energy, and Community in a World Gone Crazy, published by Chelsea Green this year, 2007. Dr. Levine has been in private practice since 1985. He is also the author of Common Sense Rebellion, Taking Back Your Life from Drugs, Shrinks, Corporations, and a World Gone Crazy, Continuum 2003. Dr. Levine has been a regular contributor to Z Magazine and the Huffington Post, and his articles and interviews have been published in Adbusters, The Ecologist, and numerous other magazines. Dr. Levine is on the Advisory Council of the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, and on the editorial advisory board of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry. His website is brucelevine.net. I should also say that Bruce is on the um, editorial advisory board of the new publication that Freedom Center and the Icarus Project have just um, released, which is the Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. So welcome to Madness Radio, Bruce Levine. Good to be on again, Will. Yeah. So, congratulations on your new on your new book. How is how is it being received? How is how are the reviews? What is the public? What is the readership um, uh, responding like? Well, it's being received uh, very well. We've got uh, a lot of uh, reviews from all different kind of walks of life. We've got. We've got certainly uh, some dissenting psychiatrists who've, who've said some really positive things about it, like uh, that you would expect folks like uh, Grace Jackson, um, 
and uh, Stuart Shipko. But and we've also got, I mean, some great endorsements from psychiatric survivors like yourself and and David Oaks who gave me a great endorsement. But we also got some other interesting endorsements from people from uh, clergy um, uh, and from also some significant political figures. And and uh, that's really where it's kind of the, the the target audiences for it are like actually a few. For certainly, the one target audience are people who have been failed by the mental health profession. I mean, either themselves personally or their friends that it, they found it to be non-productive or in many cases counterproductive. But there's also another audience uh, who've not who who aren't in that group who really this this book was for was was for people who just feel increasingly alienated from the society and the culture. Sort of extremist consumer culture, extremist industrialism, whatever you would want to call it, but and and people who are, are realizing at some level that by not acknowledging that extra amount of pain that's be caused by a sort of society that's going crazy, that psychiatry, psychology, the whole mental health professionals in many ways um, become part of the problem rather than the solution. Bruce, that's that's really exciting to me because I really think that that's where this whole mental health movement has got to go. We've got to start making connections with the broader society. And I think that there are some kind of parallels with the way in which feminism and the environmental movements kind of started as sort of special interest movements and now have become just part of how everybody talks about the society. I mean, these discussions are going on in general throughout the society. So it's really exciting for me to hear that uh, political figures and clergy are interested in the book and supporting yeah, one the of book. the probably one of the most well-known political figures, I mean, not super well-known, but in many circles, is someone named Arianna Huffington. I don't know how many folks in your, uh, of your listeners have heard of her, but she's started the, the Huffington Post and is one of those more familiar talking heads on television. And, and she's one of the few people who are in that, you know, whatever you want to call it, li liberal progressive movement who's critically thinking enough to understand that to get it early on that uh, the mental mental health has now is is now been sort of hijacked by corporations and you have something uh, akin to the military industrial complex which has very little to do with protecting and defending the United States and that's what's happened to the almost an equivalent the uh, US uh, psychopharmaceutical industrial complex which I just have an article out in November Z magazine with that title and so more and more people are getting that and I think the good news for uh, the longtime uh, struggling psychiatric survivors who want the people to know this is that one of the things that happens I think historically is when you have a kind of expansionist or imperialistic or whatever terms that you want to use, a, a sort of a greedy organization that just wants to control everything, that eventually they go too far and they make themselves kind of laughable even for the mainstream. And so this year especially, you'll see that the New York Times, which has really been very slow, just as they were in terms of criticizing the Bush administration they were, and many other in, powerful institutions, they finally, this year and the last couple of years more so, are, have seen that psychiatry has gotten gotten so ridiculous where you have 40-fold increases in bipolar disorder for kids in the last 10 years and you, you see huge corruption by pharmaceutical companies of particular psychiatrists on, on Medicaid state boards. It's gotten to the point where where they've gone so far that even your more um, mainstream, uh, whatever you want to call it, corporate media is, is now criticizing it. So it's a really a great time for me. My publisher was thrilled about the timing 
of this book because they're always wanting to have as huge an audience as possible. Of course, they want, we want psychiatric survivors to, to read it because they'll learn some, some things from it, but some of the things that are in the book, they, they already know. But for the, for the more mainstream audience out there, it's, it's certainly a bridge to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really think that your work is is some of the most cutting edge work that's going on in the way that the connections are being made. And this really is much broader than just a kind of narrow interest around mental health. It's really about how we live as a society and and how we um, how we relate as a community and the way in which community has been taken taken apart, which is really what the book is about. I really love the phrase. Um, the the idea of demoralization and how do we re bring morale back into our communities and back into our lives but let's let's get right into the book here and i kind of want to start because i mean there may be people um listening who just kind of say to themselves well look you know depression is when i'm depressed or you know my friends are depressed um people i know they're depressed it's just such a physical thing i mean clearly it's a biochemical imbalance it's something probably genetic it's probably some kind of chemical thing going on in the brain and you just have to take medication so i know that's i know you talk about this a lot and you debunk this can can you just give us an explanation of why that perspective really doesn't hold up well, first of all, I think it's going to might surprise a lot of people out there who, if all you've ever done is watch these antidepressant commercials on television, or for doctors out there who all they ever do is get their information from uh, sales representatives from drug companies, which unfortunately is too much, most of them. But it, it might surprise those people to find out that actually the psychiatric establishment, the psychiatric officialdom, thinks National Institute of Mental Health, um, the director recently came out and, and, and said in Newsweek in the cover story uh, this year, uh, spring, it was actually spring this year, something called uh, Men in Depression was the story. And, and he said, look, uh, we, we, yeah, we know no depression isn't caused by any kind of uh, serotonin uh, deficiency. And that, in fact, they've moved on to other theories. That have to, and, and he said specifically, depression is not caused by an underproduction of anything. Well, and this is shocking for a lot of people. But I tell folks, if you look back 10 years already, uh, in 1998, the American Medical Association's Essential Guide to Depression said specifically levels of serotonin aren't related to uh, depression. People have high levels of serotonin, get depressed, low levels. And this is based on a lot of studies that were going on in the early 1990s that, that tested this. There were studies that looked at the, the ser uh, serotonin and other neurotransmitter metabolites in people's spinal fluids. There was other, there was other studies that were done on, uh, they called them uh, serotonin and norepinephrine depletion studies and so and took a look what happened if you depleted serotonin and, and, and people did that create more depression and and so all there's lots of studies and actually by 2002 the New York Times in a review of all this they, they, they said this is a, this is an exact quote they said in relation to these uh, serotonin or all these neurotransmitter deficiency theories they said a multitude of studies fails to prove this precept and all this is documented and referenced in surviving America's depression epidemic. Yeah, and of course that just goes against the marketing, which is the the antidepressants are basically marketed as serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So the idea is you need more serotonin and here you go. Now, how do the drugs work then? Because I know that the placebo Well, you know, that's a great point what you're saying. It is purely marketing, not science because they knew very well that if the drugs 
for those people out there who these drugs, they, they experience it as working. And certainly if you take a look at studies, depending on the research design, somewhere between 25 and 30, 35% you know, of people when they take these, when, when they're in these studies, will, will have some kind of positive or even remission of symptoms when they're taking these drugs. But how do these drugs work? Well, a couple of ways. One is purely through the placebo effect. Most of these studies that you took a look at, in fact, we have uh, major research that's chosen the majority of studies, these drugs fail to outperform the placebo. So in other words, for people, you know, if they have high expectations of anything working, it's going to work. We know that. And that's just a common principle in science. And the second way that they work is that for some people, not all people, but some people, they really do, like any other psychotropic drug, affect, uh, drugs that affect neurotransmitters, they, they experience them as taking the edge off, just like people who use illegal drugs experience that. Now, for many other people, th that doesn't take the edge off. They get agitated, and, and, and it's very unpredictable whatever you you know, whether you use alcohol or illegal drugs or psychiatric drugs, all these drugs affect neurotransmitters, and you can't say for sure whether a drug is going to make you uh, more edgy or it's going to take the edge off. A lot of it has to do with expectations, but there are other variables. So that's how it really works. Of course, the pharmaceutical companies know that that would be not well. You don't want to market a drug to make it sound like it works the way an illegal drug works or a placebo. So you want to, the way to market a drug is to convince everybody that you know they, they, they are depressed because they have this deficiency of serotonin. But if you listen real closely to those commercials, they never say it. They always say maybe or thought to be. Those are the phrases they use because they know it hasn't been proved and, and in fact disproved that people have that deficiency. So you know just like if they want people to think about it like it's like uh, diabetes, that people who have you know, diabetes have a deficiency of insulin, therefore they need to take insulin to uh, be able to restore this imbalance. That's, the, that's what they want to have in people's heads because that's going to sell drugs. Although as a, as a friend of mine pointed out, they no longer use the diabetes metaphor so much because Zyprexa, the antipsychotic drug, has been linked to causing diabetes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they have to come up with a different one. And I think, Bruce, that the, the point about the placebo effect is really important because in a lot of ways, we live in a placebo society. We are completely saturated with media images that are manipulating our expectations when we buy products. So when you take a, a antidepressant, when I took Prozac, for example, I was being completely bombarded with the, all of these messages that are creating the expectations, planting those messages in deep, deep, deep inside of my mind, and then that affects how I experience them. And of course, as we know with illegal drugs or uh, recreational drugs, so much of it depends on the person. Some people um, take cocaine and they enjoy it. Other people have a very negative experience. It's often about this, the counterculture, the society that, that you're in, what your friends are doing, the peer pressure, all these different, different experiences. But of course, the placebo effect isn't something you can really sell. So they want to sell something that claims to have hard science when it doesn't. Um, one of the other questions I, I had for you is just this whole thing about like depression, because I know for me, I don't, it's not really a word that I use very much because my experience is so much more detailed than that. I can have times when I'm just really, really feel like I'm blocked. My, my, my anger is really blocked and I'll be depressed. There's other times when I feel sad when that's about depression. There's times when um, I'll be like have left my body and I'll be very dissociated and then that's kind of like depression. And so when we talk about this, this word depression, we're not talking about a clear clinical entity that has a bio, psych, bio 
biological um, aspect to it. We're really talking about a very personal individual experience that can be very different for different people or even different for the same person depending on what kind of, of depression you're, you're going through in the moment. Well, I agree, and there's a lot of points off of what you're saying there. One is if you read memoirs and or biographies about depressed people, almost all of, especially literary type people, hate that word, depression. I mean, they even like melancholy better. Almost nobody really likes that word. Who, from my point of view, who are who are like more kind of aesthetically minded or you know critical thinkers, they even like. I I tend to like the word demoralization because it it leads me somewhere more. If if I'm demoralized, I know, hey, I need to kind of get my morale back and depression is not something you know that really helps me very much as a word but the, the word I mean it's interesting for me if you want to use depression you know what, what it really is I mean it is when people are overwhelmed by pain you know, overwhelming pain, uh, human beings, all of us, that's all of us, uh, you know, we use strategies uh, to kind of shut down that pain sometimes. And sometimes if we do this temporarily or not, you know, we're not habituated to them, they're effective. It helps us survive. And what happens to all of our shutdown strategies, whether we're using alcohol or marijuana or watching television, you know, too much, these can get out of hand. And um, and so w- what what happens is is that from my experience, and this is sort of the link with Western society and consumer culture, industrialized society, one of the things that happens in our society that makes this depression worse or, uh, is, is that we're already kind of using some kind of shutdown or depressing mechanism to, to deal with our overwhelming pain, but when that goes too far and we become immobilized, and that's what I'm really most interested in, not just this light, you know, uh, you know light sadness and people a little bit miserable, you know, but I mean people really immobilized. You know, what happens to them is, is, is that, you know, when they get in that state, it's not a motivator for them to act. What happens is, is that's terrifying in this culture to be immobilized and lose your job, not have enough energy to get another one. That's terrifying. And what is fear but another pain? And so psychologically, often people will, even though it's not in their own best interest, they will sh- use their shutdown mechanism again to kind of shut down that pain, that fear of pain. And so you see this vicious cycle. And, and a big part of why I wrote Surviving America's Depression Epidemic was to deal with that vicious cycle and to, and to talk about the craft, and it's really a craft, not so much a science, of how people can help themselves and help each other kind of pull out of that vicious cycle. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we use the phrase uh, non-functioning, people who are non-functioning, that being a productive citizen is really kind of the key, the key thing, and depression is really something that can directly threaten um, your livelihood, and it's very terrifying. And I think at the 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 deeper ends of depression is the whole question of of suicide. And what would you say to the argument that some people make that, well, look, you know, antidepressant drugs, uh, they help prevent suicides. And so they're good because so many people, the suicides rates have gone down since people have started using antidepressant drugs. Is that is that true? Or what would you say to that? Well, it's just not true. I mean, when you do when you do look at the literature, and again, I have this all documented in Surviving America's Depression Epidemic that uh, I've articles just uh, from the British Medical Journal that goes by BMJ that they've looked at this issue, and and other people have as well, and it doesn't. Um, reduce uh, it doesn't reduce suicide in the use of antidepressants and in fact the studies more recent studies that show uh, at least in people under 25 is that increases 
it almost doubles the uh, possibility of people thinking about suicide or making suicide attempts. So, you know, this idea that what, what's happened, I think my, maybe what you're referring to is this recent article in the American Journal of Psychiatry where they claimed that suicide rates are going up you know, um, because uh, because antidepressant prescriptions are going down, and uh, this got a lot of you know news. But you know, a lot of them, again, the mainstream press, including the New York Times, caught them in in a basic lie, which was that the antidepressant uh, prescriptions didn't start going down till 2005, and there was no data at all on 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 suicide from the CDC. Uh, for that year, it, it, and so they were using 2004 data, and in 2000, you know, 2004, there, you know, it, it, their, their data, there was no association, you know, that, that they were talking about. But even if they, even if in 2005, they suicide rates did happen to continue to go up, you know, I think mostly, if you take a look at historically, what homicide, suicide. Or rates always mostly have to do with economic variables. And so it was even before I discovered that they were being untruthful about the actual facts, I thought it was um, pretty um, problematic for them uh, to be claiming uh, what every good scientist knows, that association isn't causation, and that, that, the, that usual and historically the reasons that affect suicide and homicide doesn't have anything to do with psychiatric treatments, getting it or, or not getting it. It usually, has to do, it usually has to do, like I say, economic conditions. Yeah, the, the um, pharmaceutical industry is waging a really serious propaganda campaign, and they took a big hit when the black box warnings were put on the antidepressant drugs saying, look, these things, these drugs can increase um, suicide. And they're trying to argue that, well, now that fewer people are using these drugs, more there's more suicide. So we have to be cautious about telling people to not use these drugs because they have these uh, the side effects. That's really a propaganda argument that's, that's being made. So Bruce, you talked about economic variables. So what, in your view, um, is the causes of depression or are the causes of depression? And the other question I had for you is, is, you know, is it true that there is this epidemic? Because I know that there is a diagnosis, inflation, that psychiatry and the pill companies want more and more people to get diagnoses and they want more people to be set, be told, yes, you have this disorder so that they will be able to market their, uh, their drugs. Um, but is there actually a depression epidemic going on in the U.S. And, and even worldwide? And then what would be the causes of it if it's not this biochemical cause that, that's claimed by the, um, the mainstream? Well, let me take the first part of your question is that, uh, and make, let me make sure I get to the second part if I forget it. But in the first part, what you're talking about is what, what do we know is, are the causes of depression? Well, we certainly know what's associated with depression. And, and, and you know, the obvious things that people in your audience who've retained their common sense are not going to be surprised, but we have many studies that show, for example, social isolation is associated with depression, miserable marriages are associated with depression. We also know economically people who are on public assistance, who are on welfare, at least in the United States, their rates of depression are triple the general population again because it's you know and if your whole society is is poor around you 
it's not it's not as lethal if you're poor, but if everybody around you, you know, or some people around you have wealth and you don't, it's much more painful. And we also know in the U.S. that people who are unemployed, their rates of depression are almost uh, twice as high as people who aren't uh, depressed. And we know people who've been had early childhood trauma. There's over 200 studies that show that pe- those folks are are, are are in some studies as high 12 times as likely to become depressed. And so the common thread in in all of these associations are uh, are pain is emotional pain. Now you know again if you're a real scientist you you will say like well does does depression you know does a lack of community a lack of social support lead to depression or does depression you know make one less you know likely to go out and make friends and and certainly you know there's these vicious cycles these vicious interactional cycles that that that, that one has to take seriously. But in one interesting study where they talked to unhappily married women. And they asked them, they asked them, what do you think the cause of their depression was? And the majority of them said, my unhappy marriage, um, which I'm sure their depression made, didn't make that marriage any happier. So, again, there was a vicious cycle. But, you know, your, your other point about the inflation of uh, the amount of people being depressed, do we really have a huge increase in the rate of depression? I think it's a sort of difficult question to sort out. My from looking at all the data and from my experience, I would say that the huge increases in tenfold, maybe even higher than, higher than that increase in the rate of depression in the last 50 years in the U.S. has to do with a couple of things. One of it, one is, is I think that people are, you know, more and more aware of these symptoms of depression from these antidepressant commercials, and you know, they're more and more when they go in their doctor and the doctor can't figure out what's wrong with them they get, you know they immediately call them depressed and and what might be just a passing state that might just be a few weeks all of a sudden becomes a permanent condition all of a sudden not only do they have an illness they become a depressive for life you know so certainly some of that happens but i also think it's a mistake that some critics of psychiatry make to to pin it all on that that really you know that that and not taking a look that i think there is a great deal more despair and unnecessary pain that's created by society and culture that is, in fact, increasing levels of unhappiness. Bruce, what about the, I mean, this is something we talk about a lot at the, at the Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, just the role of holistic health perspectives, like, for example, the way in which diet can play a role in depression and anxiety. And I know that for me, I mean, one of the ways that I kind of manage my own experiences with depression, certainly it's community and being connected with people and having that morale and, and being excited and interested in the world. But I also have to be really careful about the foods that I eat and really careful about um, my uh, my personal health of, of my body from a holistic perspective. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, sir, again, again, this is common sense, but we have lots of studies to bear out that to the extent that somebody's physical health is uh, good, their their mental health is going to be good. And to the extent that you go through uh, some severe physical problems, um, whether it's anemia or whether it's your uh, food allergy, that you know you're going to be more likely to be miserable because again that's that's pain. And so you know to say that there isn't uh, an underlying uh, biochemical source of depression is 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 very different than saying that certain problematic medical conditions 
uh, or physical conditions are, are, are they're, they're, of course, they're associated with depression. So what I always tell folks is that you really, you know, you, again, you want to really pay attention to your own body, really pay attention to what things, you know, what, what foods that you eat or don't, you know, that, that, that make you feel bad. Um, and, you know, some people are, you know, are highly, uh, their day can be ruined by having some MSG the night, the night before. And for other people, it's no big deal to have, to have that. And so, you know, really paying attention to your body and what feels good and what, what you know, helps you, you know, get, get proper sleep, all of those things are huge. Well, yeah, I want to get, I want to get into this kind of the positive solutions and the, the strategies that you're presenting. But you, you said something earlier that I think was, was kind of really uh, provocative, the example of someone who is depressed. And then if you ask them why, they say, well, my marriage is uh, is is the cause of my depression and of course the the um the system sort of offers uh antidepressant drugs so in a in a sense would you say that that pushing pills and the kind of medical the medicalization of these problems is really a form of social control it's a way of kind of keeping the status quo out of the discussion and saying well the problem is with the individual it's inside of you yeah, I think two two things are going on. Obviously, the major reason why all the pill pushing is happening is just easy money for drug companies and easy money for for doctors. You know that that's the easiest. You know, rather than talking to folks. I mean, so it, it, on one level, it's that's why what's happening. But the reason why it stays, why why there's no forces in society, major institutional forces that have seriously confronted it, is because exactly what you're saying. It does maintain the status quo. And uh, you know, one of the most obvious sources of depression is the interpersonal realm. I mean, because what can be one of the most major reasons besides your physical health that creates pain for you is your interpersonal relationships, either total loneliness, which is painful, or being in a, a miserable relationships. And so often you'll see people in, you know, family life where for whatever reason, um, there's enormous resentment that's built up, anger, um, you know, feelings people don't, are being uncared about, and you know that th- there's nothing more painful than that. And so people move into depression off of that. So you know, and and uh, you know, but that to to start dealing with all the in- interpersonal elements of family life and society and the job world, you know, I guess it sort of throws a monkey wrench into your efficient, uh, productive assembly line, which doesn't want to deal with all those realities. Yeah, you start talking about, well, how do we change the world, and what is wrong with the world, and what, what kind of maybe we need movements. Yeah, you start talking about maybe we need to have families spending a lot more time caring about interpersonal relationships than just thinking, like, you don't have to spend any time at all on that, and all your time should be spent on uh, producing and consuming, which is basically what our culture is moving towards. They want people um, 24-7 actually doing both at the same time. I kind of joke about that in, in surviving America's depression epidemic. It seems like your ideal person in our society is some salesman in a car trying to sell something to somebody while they're using phone minutes eating fast food. So you want them to be doing, every, you know, selling, you know, buying and consuming. And, well, you know, if you have a one-dimensional society where that's going on at the expense of, say, traditional peoples or pre-industrial peoples who spent a lot of time caring about human relationships, about language, about caring about 
you know, having nobody in that tribe feeling any resentment. You know, they, they, that was what they, 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 they prioritized. And, you know, we just don't do that in our society. And that, for me, as much as anything, is a huge reason why we have these huge increasing rates of misery, despair, and whatever, you know, depression or whatever you want to call it. Bruce, do you think, it, do you think it's a matter of values and what people believe in and what they care about? Or are there more powerful political economic forces coming from corporate America and the financial system that are really driving this? Because I know that a lot of people certainly want to spend more time with their families and things, but they're just working so much, and there's so much pressure going on, and there's so much of, of an economic, there's so much of an economic political force that's playing on individual lives. So, how much of this is really about revitalizing values, and how much of it is challenging the political and economic uh, status quo? Well, I think the problem is that they're both interconnected because if you don't buy into the values of the you know, inter, you know of the political status quo, for most people that's going to for many people that's going to cause them to be economically marginalized. So, so people are pressured into accepting a certain kind of corporate industrial values, and um, and that's painful. That goes back to the point I was making before. An enormous amount of reason why people why I wrote this book is for people who they they may or may not be able to sort of articulate this, but as soon as I say that, it's just they it's highly you know, a lot of people feel really validated that a lot of their pain is caused by just feeling completely alienated from from a society and culture whose values are being you know propagandized controlled by by uh, uh, corporations who want you to believe that that for example take schools that you know that 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 it's like if you, if you it's a, if you go there get up 7 in the morning there and and you and you're there all day and you're and you're good and you're compliant you're manageable even if you're if you if you if you didn't really learn anything you did everything everybody told you to do you were a good boy <laughs> a lot of those people become psychiatrists psychologists and uh you know they, they're not troubled by that. They're not pained by that. Whereas a lot of other people are going like, wait a minute, I thought school is supposed to be a place where they're supposed to kind of excite my learning here. They're supposed to get me more curious. And that's not happening here. And, and they're feeling alienated and they're feeling pained by that. And so you have, I guess, to answer your question, it, it's, it's that there is a battle going on here among people who are not buying into the value system that is being pushed on them by the economic order. And it's very, very difficult because it's not just a, a kind of moral issue to, to not buy in costs most people economically. So how is it, you, you mentioned, the let's just sort of tie this all together. You mentioned that the rates of depression are, are, are going up. Depending on how you look at the statistics, they're basically going up. So what kinds of changes have been happening in our society for, on this level of the corporate economy and the way in which um, we're structured politically and economically, what kinds of changes have been driving this uh, disintegration of community and the rise of alienation and the rise of depression? Well, there's a lot of areas. The one that I could point to most statistically, some of these are very difficult to measure and quantify, but the one statistically that a lot of sociologists, probably most notably uh, Robert Putnam and his book Bowling Alone, has talked about is this huge decimation of community and uh, social support. What he, he calls uh, social capital is his term. That, you know, all that, that, that's happened in the last 50 years in the United States. So statistically, you could actually see people have fewer friends. They, have less, they spend less time with the friends they do have. Same thing with coworkers or neighbors. And so how is that being driven? Why is that? What's going on that people have a fewer friends? Of course, you know, that something's going on in your whole kind of economic order of things, that people are being forced to move around a lot more, 
than they did. You have uh, eminent domain. This happens here where I'm living in Cincinnati, where uh, major uh, uh, institutions decide they, they want to expand, so they just kick, you know, they just destroy neighborhoods. Um, you have, you know, obviously corporations destroying whole, you know, towns by deciding that their profit margin isn't high enough, so taking their, uh, you know, taking their companies and taking their production to uh, Mexico or some other, or to the Far East. So at many different levels, when you have a society that cares more only, actually exclusively, about money-making, about bottom line, at the expense of every other variable, you're going to have a breakdown of community. So that's one huge area that you can actually statistically see. There are other areas as well, though. Well, it makes me think of the studies that were done on immigrants and actually people coming to the United States from Mexico or other countries. If you measure their uh, rates of mental health problems before they move to the U.S., they're lower. And then a generation later, they're having all these mental health problems just as a result of, of moving into the U.S. Right. That's a, that's a st famous study by William Vega that you're talking about that was done in, in the late, about, I think, 1998. And yeah, in, the, in this, in this, in, with depression, the rate depression episodes has actually tripled to the extent that the Mexican immigrants were here for more than 13 years. And Vega talked to a lot of these folks in the study, and obviously, a lot of Mexican immigrants came over here for money, for wealth, and they were thinking that you know that that that's they can get that, and there would be no cost. And they all became clear to them that a, a huge reason why their rates not just of depression, but substance abuse, you know, you pick it. Um, uh, they, 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 why those all went up was that they just lost support for them, specifically family support, which was huge down there in, in, in Mexico, that it wasn't just your immediate family, it was cousins and aunts and uncles, and there was this huge support network that you just that never felt terrified that, yeah, that if you were going through hard times, there would be someone to help you out. But when you come to this uh, kind of, uh, yeah, <laughs> this culture here, where it's like doggy dog survival of the fittest, there's this enormous terror that uh, if you don't you know, do what the boss tells you, uh, you're, you're out, you're out, and you could be homeless, and, and that's a pretty scary thing. Do you, do you, men, do you mention um, you know, the, the, the isolation and the fragmentation, people moving around, people losing friends? Do you think that also another driving factor in depression is just the kind of, the kind of hopelessness for the future? I mean, you know, we're living in a society where it's really hard to th imagine what our grandchildren are going to be living in, in terms of the greenhouse effect, in terms of um, wars, in terms of the kind of technologies that are being unleashed, in, in terms of the way in which there are all these threats to our future, the environmental problems, toxic um, pollution, the effects that are happening on the, the food supply. I mean, do you think that that plays a role in, in driving depression as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, you know, totalitarian society or any kind of bunch of control freaks wants its population to to be hopeless because then they're going to not put up a fight. And so, in a lot of ways, that that's what uh, a, a lot of folks out there, you know, their their cynicism um, is understandable. I mean, I I certainly get cynical on a very regular basis, and I certainly move into some degree of hopelessness. But then I, I, I realize, you know, that's what folks who are folks who are controlling the whole show here. They they'd like you to move on to those places, and so a lot of what I did for writing uh, Surviving America's Depression Epidemic. I mean, certainly I looked at you know 30 years of empirical research on antidepressant treatments and on and on and on, all this kind of stuff. But, but a lot of what I also did was, look, I, I was really interested in, 
you know, how people retain their morale, more subjective uh, biographies, memoirs, essays, and, and some also is interested in even you know, some pretty significant political figures who you, you, I, I sometimes scratch my head and I say, well, how have they been able to maintain their morale? So, for example, I, I, did, some, I did some reading uh, on, on Noam Chomsky, and, and, I, and I said, you know, how has this guy been able to just kind of stay fiercely, uh, you know, kind of vitalized and maintain his morale in the face of things? Because obviously, the guy's a super smart guy and he knows what's going on, but he keeps plugging away. And so, People who don't know, Noam Chomsky is a very prominent left-wing critic of... U.S. foreign policy and have been a big figure in the peace movement is often very, very, very insightful, powerful critiques of American society and the power structure and everything. But it's very, you're very much, you're right. It's very much about doom and gloom. It's very dark what he, what he writes about. Yeah, what I was going to say, sorry, well, was that was that one of the interesting things that I've discovered with him because most of what you read about him is just this fierce kind of a critical analysis. But I I, I, re I was reading one uh, sort of a question and answer period with him where somebody asked him, you know, I was talking to him basically, how do you maintain your morale? And he said, you know, when, when I remember back in the in the early days of uh, v uh, protesting the Vietnam War, and for people who people may not realize it, but in you know, the mid 1960s, 65. 1966, the vast majority of America was supporting this uh, involvement in Vietnam, and there was just a handful of people like Noam Chomsky and I don't know a few others who were saying this is a ridiculous idea. And he talks about being at the at the time thinking like, there's no chance. We're we're we're, we're kind of wasting our time. This is sort of crazy. We're not going to accomplish anything. And then he he in, in retrospect, obviously things in a, in a couple of years things changed dramatically, and you have a huge part of America involved in the anti-war movement and. And he, and he looks back and he says, you know, part of my problem was I was uh, too much of an innocent. I was believing what I read in the papers about, about, uh, ab about things here and, um, and sort of like sort of being, allowing myself to be convinced of the hopelessness of the situation by the media. And I do see this huge disconnect between what people at the very of the hierarchy, the uh, you know, mass media or the top of corporations sort of disseminate and want people to sort of believe about things and what people are believing at, at a grassroots level. And part of um, what's really unfortunate now is I think more than maybe almost any time in American history there, people are just utterly broken and feel this sense of helplessness. But I think people at the top realize that it is their, their hold on things is very fragile and it doesn't take much for people to get their morale back and do something about this. Well, that's, I guess, what I wanted to ask you now is just about what would you recommend people who are experiencing depression or who have friends who are experiencing depression or who are struggling with this question? What are your recommendations? I mean, we can talk about changing the whole society and we can certainly, you know, talk about becoming activists and becoming involved with movements. But what kinds of things do you think people can do to boost their morale and, and kind of get themselves out of a depression phase if the mainstream approach of medications is not really the way that they, they want to go? Well, at a very personal level, taking a look at that person who's just totally, demo let's say there's somebody in your listening audience right now who's completely immobilized, they have just a hard time even getting out of bed, a lot of what I think they need to sort of focus in on is just basic morale and think about who in their life kind of gives them energy, who in their life just sort of sucks any energy out of, you know, just sucks energy away from them. 
to, for them to be thinking about if they if they if they're completely isolated and they have nobody to maybe think about at times in their life what they did do um, that just helped them give get some morale. So I have a lot of, of vignettes in uh, Surviving America's Depression cha- uh, book. I have a, a whole chapter on morale and energy, talking about you know what people do, you know what what this craft of of regaining morale is all about, how people move out of this vicious cycle. And there's a there's a lot of different ways from from you to what I call a kind of a, a sort of a playful, good-hearted mischief. A lot of things out there don't take that much energy that can create positive energy, and a lot of uh, a lot of things out there may feel like negative energy that can be transformed into sort of constructive energy. So a lot of artists I talk about who just feel utterly pained by things and just feel like they have no energy to do anything or to write anything, that they just kind of push themselves a little bit to to be creative. And sometimes just doing that gives them some more energy. On, On another level, you know, when people have some energy to do anything at all, one of the things that I think that happens when you're depressed, and this happens to me, is that we all get self-absorbed. And that, again, is a vicious cycle. And so part of what you want to try to do is that, you know, that even if I believe that the world is coming to an end and there's nothing I could do about it and and that uh, I just I just feel like we've got like 50 years left on the planet and you know the heck with bothering any kind of social change or activism and you know I think people need to understand that even if that were true and I'm not saying that is true but even if it were true that it's in their best interest to kind of move beyond themselves and to see what other people are caring about whether it's you know potholes on your street or it's some senseless war and and that energy of caring about something besides your own pain um, is going to be a vehicle that's going to help you connect with other people. And and that connecting with other people becomes a huge kind of antidote to depression. Does that follow what I'm saying? I, I think so. I mean, that's in my experience. I had, had a big personal lesson when I would get into very, very dark states where I would just feel like no one could understand me and people were trying to hurt me. And I just kind of learned that in these depressive states, if I could just call a friend and just even just to have them on the phone for a second and just to say I'm calling you up I feel awful I can't really talk but I figured it would be better for me to call you than to not and then I and then I would say goodbye and actually I learned that just that little bit of reaching out and making contact when I was in those totally collapsed can't get out of bed states really made it really made a difference it was a big personal lesson for me yeah, I mean, one of the things that's sort of unavoidable, and this is a really hard thing to do when you're depressed and you have no energy, but is to remember that for a lot of the neat thing about a lot of people I know who become depressed is they tend to be sort of more sensitive to pain and, and, and they can be even more like critical thinkers. And, and, and actually, there's actually studies that prove that, that I talk about in the book. But one of the, there's, upsides and downsides to every temperament and if you're going to be more sensitive you're going to be more critical thinker you're going to probably have a lot more creative things to say you're going to be a lot more interesting person but you're more going to be more susceptible to feeling a lot of pain and and malaise and one of the things that you, you kind of need to learn at some point in your life is to have some discipline over over those emotions and and you can that discipline doesn't necessarily mean anything but having a sense of humor i mean for some a lot of people their way out and very famous people including abraham lincoln who was a yeah two major suicide watches on him in his life i mean lots you know lots of major periods of despair and what he discovered early in life was that that humor was a kind of a discipline to kind of pull himself out of it that it would not only pull himself out of these deep 
deep emotional states by allowing them not to take them so seriously, but it would also be very connecting. Other people kind of got a kick out of them. And also actually helped them politically. It was like one of his tools for success. So it is, a, it is, I know it's a hard thing to say to folks when they're completely down in the dumps, completely immobilized, where, they, where they're just looking for any kind of shot of energy, any shot of morale. But once they move a little bit past that to understand that you do have to kind of create a little bit of discipline over those emotions and not, not get drowned by them. So you would say that there is a connection between someone who maybe is more susceptible to depression or struggles with depression more in their life. There is a connection between that and creativity and sensitivity, you think? Absolutely. And this is diametrically opposed to the, the modern psychiatric propaganda. In fact, Peter Kramer's just written a whole book in, in, in total opposition to, a, to that point. I mean, he's just equated depression to cancer and, and, and says that what you just said there is just you know, romantic hogwash. But, the, but common sense and my experience and, and maybe and, and the research just, just, just backs up what you're saying. I mean, there's lots of studies out there that show, for example, that it, you know, people who are more likely people who are depressed are more likely to have some kind of critical thinking of to, to understand to have a better sense of what people really are thinking about them negatively and to have a better sense studies show that they, they have a more of a sense of how much control they have over games there's some famous studies in psychology that that, that show that we also have a, a huge history of a lot of artists and writers, and I talk about a lot of them in Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, who were deeply depressed, and, and their, their pain could have, in some cases, fueled their total self-destructive behavior, but in other cases, some of these folks um, were lucky enough to discover that that pain could also be a fuel for, real, for creativity. And, and, and so that's part of what I, uh, I try to do, help folks to, to understand, is that if you're going to feel more out there, I mean, this seems basic common sense to me that I don't even need studies for, but there are, but that if you're going to feel things more deeply, you're going to feel more the, the absence of beauty in the world, you're going to feel more the absence, you know, the, the lies of the world, you're going to feel the pain of those things more, you're going to be more sensitive to that, you're going to be more susceptible to depression, and therefore, if you don't want to give up your personality, which I suppose you can, you know, you can completely disconnect from your personality in a lot of different ways. If you want to hold on to your personality, which is what I try to help people do, is they're going to have to learn to, to, to deal with some of the downsides of it. Yeah, I just know personally when I get into a depressive state, I have to pay really attention to the kinds of things that I'm thinking about because some of it is just completely negative and, and just not reality-based. But oftentimes, I have there are things that are really valuable messages. I have insights or I have things that I haven't been dealing with or things that I've been in denial about that kind of, kind of come rushing up when I'm depressed. And then when I get out of the state, I really need to remember the kinds of insights that I had when I was in the state because I need to maybe make some changes or talk to somebody about something or deal with things that I haven't been, uh, haven't been dealing with. And then kind of in a sense, the depression becomes sort of a completing force in my life. It brings in missing parts and then it helps me to actually have a fuller life and a more creative life. And I know that that's very, very hard. It's not something I would have been able to hear, you know, six years ago or five, five years ago, but I think it's something that I've learned that these parts of me actually do have value. They're not, it's not just like the machine is broken, that there actually is something valuable in the depression experience itself. Right. I think one of the kind of, I don't know how, how good this, uh, this metaphor fits for you here, this analogy, but I mean, one of the ways of kind of looking at it is sort of like, uh, like fire. I mean, fire can be this very destructive thing. I mean, but it also, 
uh, fire can cook food. It can uh, create beautiful objects. Um, it can warm you. I mean, it can do all kinds of stuff. And I think part of when people go through these deep funks, um, these deep periods of, of, of malaise, that there's a lot of things that could go on for them that could be unbelievably self-destructive and not helpful to anybody else. But there could be also certain things that emerge during that process that can be very helpful to themselves and other people. One of the things I tell folks is that the parts of a surviving America's depression epidemic that where there are where some of the some of the things that people felt are oh, well these are the most helpful things I kind of wrote when I was in deep deep states and deep funks and kind of hung in there and tried to see how I could kind of use those use those emotional states to get you know as 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 a vehicle to get me to some places and and sometimes it's, they just become nothing more than than a funny story um, when you know but sometimes they're they're more difficult you know they, they they create even more meaningful events I mean you talk about a lot of famous people that when they when they had their period of change in life um whether it was uh, you know, Malcolm X or, you know, you could go through a whole list of people that they had these deep periods of, of dark despair as that, 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 that led them to a path of, of what they needed to do. Um, you know, and some, sometimes those paths were problematic. Some people moved into some really bad problematic negative behaviors, but other people moved into unbelievably altruistic and positive transformative transforming, uh, places. Well, one of the things that I tell people because I, you know, I work so much in peer counseling and people talk to me about their pain and their struggles with suicide and depression. One of the things I tell people is that, look, you know, this, this is a movie. Your life is a movie and it's, it hasn't finished yet. You know, this is a book that hasn't been, you haven't read, you haven't read further. And so if you, if you just give up or you decide to end your life, you're not going to know what happens next. And it's often really worth it to find out what happens next because our lives are about change and like you said some of the most powerful creative inspiring spiritually connected um, amazing people have had extremely dark periods of depression and to sort of to see it in a bigger context that you know the suffering that you're going through now may be part of something that's going to unfold that may be more amazing and positive than you could have even could ever imagined at some point in the future you just have to kind of stick around and and do what you can. Bruce, we are almost out of time. I wanted to give you a chance to wrap up. Any any last words? I think the last point off of what you're saying is a huge point of of surviving America's depression epidemic is that a major problem of consumer society is to make fee people feel bad about feeling bad. And that's how you get people to buy more products and more services. And one of the most important rebellions that for people is to embrace, you know, all of their emotionality. And yet, yeah, certainly it feels better to feel joy than to feel sadness. But how you get in trouble out there in life is to buy into kind of consumers society's idea that if you're feeling sad, you're some kind of loser. And once you become alienated from your negative emotions, they win. Totalitarians win. Sort of uh, people who are selling you ridiculous products win. And the more that you can be around people who will certainly enjoy the positive feelings, but but not feel alienated from all the human dimensions, you're gonna be you're gonna be less in pain. You're gonna be less alienated from from your feelings and be actually much less susceptible to severe emotional difficulties. Bruce Levine, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Madness Radio. It's always a pleasure to have you uh, on the show and to hear about your really inspiring and amazing work. My pleasure, Will. 
Um, you've been listening to an interview with uh, Bruce Levine. He is a clinical psychologist and author of the recently re- released book, Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, How to Find Morale, Energy, and a Community in a World Gone Crazy. Highly recommended. Check it out at your independent uh, local bookstore. And you can also take a look at Bruce's website, which is Bruce Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, Bruce Levine. Dot net. Uh, that's about all the time we have um, this week. Thanks a lot for tuning in on Madness Radio. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. KWMD, Kasilov. 90.7, Anchorage 104.5.